Jesus' name. Amen. Um, all right. Oh, nice. Yeah, that was a good time. been awkward if you did that. You just scared me in my prayer. I would have been like, ah, Lord, help me. Um, no. <laughs> so we're continuing our series, Gospel Truth, uh, six truths that are secured for Christians because of what Christ has done. Uh, from the committed to following Christ to the curious about Christ, we're just making it plain. And to be honest with you, we're going to take a little bit of time before we get to our kind of stated gospel truth this evening. Uh, but we've talked about three so far. I am not condemned from verse 1. I am free from verses 1 through 4. And then last week from verses 5 through 11, I belong. And each week we've shown you how they've stood by themselves, but also how they've stacked. Uh, there is no condemnation and there is true liberation, which leads to deep transformation. There has been a clear emphasis in the first 11 verses that kind of all circulates around one word, one idea that Paul is labeling to communicate to the readers at the Church of Rome and us today. And it's this word, security. 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 In a culture and a campus and frankly a world that is and has been marked by insecurity, to have security is one of the most precious things that we could possibly possess today. It was in the first century and it is today in the 21st century. Uh, as I was writing the message and typing it out earlier today, I remembered that I had a parking ticket <laughs> that I actually had to pay literally by today. Where's Tommy? Tommy and I were hanging out. Uh, Tommy and I were hanging out at Indie Coffee, still my favorite coffee shop in state, uh, in, I'm sorry, in Madison. Still my favorite coffee shop here. I've not gone to w Wonder, Wonder State. I don't know how to say it. Yeah, I know, right? I've got I've to do it. I, it's on me. It's on me. But currently my favorite spot, Indie Coffee. And I rolled up to the first, I always park in the same place. It's on Regent. It's right in front of the bike shop. Like, it's like right there. You know what I'm talking about? Like uh, it was the first place I parked when, um, when Molly and I hung out with Ava and Milo there uh, for the first time, and we just like, uh, it's just where I've always parked. And, and Tommy and I walk out, it's a great time, really enjoyable time, and we, he's laughing because he knows what's about to happen. Um, we walk out, and you, I didn't want to do the thing, you know, like when, when you say, um, when, when you say bye, and then you like both walk in the same direction, right? Like that just is terrible. Like it is like King Cringe, it is bad. Um, and so I, I look at Tommy and I'm like, I've, I've learned, guys. I'm like, hey, which way are you going? Because then I know whether I can say goodbye or not, right? Pro tip for social interaction, right? Mark it down. Um, and I look over at, at Tommy and I say, which way are you going? He's like, that way. And I'm like, oh, perfect. My car's right over th <clears throat> there, except it wasn't. <laughs> my car was gone. So my immediate thought is that Katie and Molly have taken the spare key and have stolen my car. Because that makes sense, I guess. Like, you guys have jobs. I don't know. Like, why would you? That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. So I look, I'm, I'm, I mean, Tommy could tell you. He, we, we were kind of talking, but I was, like, very much like, what the heck has happened to my, have I gotten, has my car gotten stolen in, Ma on Regent? Like, are you kidding me? Like, what's going on? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, come to find out that I had misread the sign, and I had parked there between the hours of 4 and 5.30 p.m. on Regent. You're not supposed to do that. Whoops, didn't know. Um, but I like, I, I mean, I ended up finding my car. It ended up being like not a terrible ticket, not great, but not a terrible ticket. Uh, but I definitely showed up to connection group frazzled as frick. Like I was like, no, like not coherent in connection group that evening. Um, and, and what had happened is that I had assumed security. 
I had assumed security. I thought that I had security of spot, but I was wrong. We all do this with security. Y'all do it on syllabus week. Tell the truth, shame the devil. You do it on syllabus week. It's when you look at it and you go through the syllabus and you're paying attention for when the professor tells you what the weight of the score for your homework, your attendance, your quizzes, and your tests are so that you can do finals week math so that you can just like find out, hey, what do I need to, y'all have asked this, what do I need to get on the final to pass this class or to get X grade to secure my score? I one time, <laughs> in anatomy and physiology, I one time actually uh, did the math, got a grade back that was lower than I anticipated. I kid you not, I emailed that man my math and I said, this is not the grade I was supposed to get and he changed it for me. It was incredible. But I was just doing anything I could to try to, to secure my score. Security comes up in spots and in scores and in a myriad of different ways. But what Paul is talking about here is security, not of either of those two things, but of, of soul. He is talking about the security of soul. He's talking about gospel security. He's talking about having a security and assurance to, to know that there is no condemnation for you because you were in Christ Jesus. That because of what Christ has done, you are free from the penalty and weight and even present impact of sin. And that because you now belong to the one you did not belong to before, because of what Christ has done with his life, death, burial, and resurrection, you turning from your sin and identifying with him as your Lord and Savior, surrendering to Christ. You belong to him. And what you belong to, you are formed by security over and over again, gospel security. And he's been going in on that for 11 verses in Romans chapter 8. But then we get to verses 12 and 13. And it feels like something else is happening. Listen again to these verses. Ronnie just read it, but li listen to this. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All right, can we just be honest? Like, that's a little bit of a shift in tone from no condemnation, you are free, like deep transformation, you belong. Like, that's a, that's a little bit of a shift from the idea of security. All this talk about security, and now Paul's throwing out words like obligation. Now Paul's throwing out phrases like put to death the deeds, or I would argue the translation here is actually the misdeeds of the body. Like, Paul, what are you on right now? Like, like what, what are you doing in the text? We're going to reach back into our bag and get on our English teacher game a little bit and, and ask, because, because your Bible maybe says, so then at the beginning, or therefore, and we got to find out what, come on, what the therefore is, therefore, okay, right? We do need to do that work. But he's throwing our minds back to what he has been saying and what he has just said. He's talking about the flesh and the spirit. Remember, the flesh is this idea of loving sin and desiring to be free from God. And the spirit is this idea of being led by the spirit, having a mind of the spirit, walking in the spirit. is this idea of loving God and desiring to be free from sin. And Paul is saying that we have no obligation to sin. Maybe you could see it in a different way. He is saying that if you love God and desire to be, from, be free from sin, that you don't owe your sin anything. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying the responsibility. He's talked about security, and now his tone is shifted to your responsibility. He's saying your responsibility is this. You don't owe your sin anything. 
And then he talks about the deeds of the body. Paul, again, like it kind of confusing. Let, let's suss this out for a, uh, for a moment um, because I want you to see what he's going out here. When Paul says the deeds of the body or the misdeeds of the body, Paul is not saying to dishonor or discard your body. I, I, we don't have the time to get into like a full theology of the body. One day we will, and I just cannot wait for that day. We don't have the time now, but your body is so important to who you are and how you follow Jesus. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, after talking about a, a, a portion of sin that focuses in on the misdeeds of the body, sin done in and through the body, Paul tells the church to glorify God with their body. So the body, it's important to understand, is not something to be discarded, ignored, or treated as inherently wicked. There is objective beauty in the body and your use of it that actually brings glory to God. Brief aside there, moving into the text. Paul's talking about the deeds of the body. Of the body. Okay, still clear as mud? Awesome. Uh, Maybe this will help. Jesus has these moments in the Gospels, these short biographies of his life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection, where he talks about sin, and he says something, maybe you've heard this before, where he says something like, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, if your foot causes you to sin, if your hand leads you, leads you to sin, he says, cut it off, cut it off, gouge it out. Now he's speaking egregiously and metaphorically to elicit a reaction from his hearers, but there's basically what he's saying. He's saying, hey, if a part of your body is causing you to sin, your responsibility is to shut it down because it's your foot, it's your hand, it's your eye that is leading you to sin. So control it so it doesn't control you. Jesus puts the locus of sin in our bodies. Sin originates within us. And that's, again, what Paul is saying. He, hey, it's the sin that's of your body. This is coming. This is not something that stained you and made you dirty. It started in you and comes out of you as you live. And Paul is saying essentially this. You don't owe that sin that originates in you anything. He says, you, you, don't, you don't need to give it any quarter. You don't need to give it any honor. Just because you desire to do something does not mean that you have to do something. He's talking about these misdeeds of the body. And then he goes further. He says, you don't have to, uh, you don't owe the sin that originates in you anything. And your responsibility is to put it to death and then keep putting it to death, kill it, and then keep killing it. <laughs> Paul, <laughs> no condemnation. True liberation, deep formation. You don't know the sin that it, that it originates in your body, anything. Whoa, dude, like what are you? The tension between security and responsibility is thick. And Paul just keeps pressing on the gas and not letting up. If we're honest, when we read this part of the text, it actually gets a little bit uncomfortable. Typically, people will jump past these two verses, actually, when they teach it, and jump right to verse 14, which we will get to, but we've got to wrestle with, ha- with what's happening in these two verses. It's uncomfortable. It's heavy. And maybe it just should be. I, I like to think of it like this. Words create worlds, so I try to be very careful with how I use them, in particular with the language that I use. So there's a phrase, and I'm not coming to anybody's neck here. I just want to be very clear about that. But there's a phrase um, that I have heard or frankly that I have said that I need to like retract 
um, from my life, but there's this phrase we sometimes use that, that's really easy to use that kind of describes, uh, we use to describe like how we like approach or deal with our sin. And it's this idea that we like, I, I need to manage my sin. I need to manage my sin. I'm gonna manage it. How do you manage it? I'll, I'll tell you right now. I'm gonna tell you right now. Here's how you manage your sin. I just wanna be so clear about this. Here's how you manage your sin, right? Notes out, iPhones out, okay. You don't. <laughs> Here's how you manage your sin. You, you don't. Because you can't. Because sin by its very nature refuses to be managed. Let me, let me say it like this. There was an article written in 2011 about a guy in South Africa by the name of Marius Els. This dude is like the Joe Exotic of Johannesburg. Like for real. Like this guy was wild. He had a 400-acre farm, and before any of this happened, the man had a giraffe and a rhino just living on his property. That's wild. I have a dog, okay? Like, this guy's like, that's my giraffe. And it's like, that is a strange sentence. Um, he said, that's my, that's my giraffe, that's my rhino. And in 2006, he adopted another peculiar pet to live on his land. Uh, it is a hippo. Uh, its name was, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this name? Humphrey the Hippo. Come on. That's not even fair. That actually just sounds adorable. It's a dope name. Um, but there are pictures of Elf, of, of sorry, of, of Els riding this hippo through the river and like swimming with the hippo, which he did frequently. Els is quoted as saying this, he's like a son to me. He's a hippo. I don't, I mean, like that, maybe like you got some self-esteem issues, but like, that's fine. But like, is Humphrey the hippo like a son to me? Louise else, Marius's wife, maybe had some misgivings. Like that one time that Humphrey had chased their son, their actual son, uh, in a canoe up a tree until paramedics arrived to rescue him late at night. Or all of the livestock that Humphrey kept attacking and eating that was theirs and their neighbors. Or all of the golfers that had to run away from a hippo that had broken out of the 400 acre enclosure. I'm from Florida and on golf courses, we deal with alligators. Sometimes, sometimes, I'm not recommending this. This isn't prescriptive. I'm not saying you should, but sometimes you like kind of roll up on an alligator and you like kind of swat its tail and run away just to, it'll like kind of scroll back into the lake. I'm not saying do that, but I am saying it's fun. Um, and, 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 you know, that's a little bit different than saying I'm going to go slap a hippo, right? Like that's kind of a, a, a different thing, right? Didn't think you'd hear those words at church this evening. Um, but, but like uh, th that's what, what happens here. There's all these things that are happening. But one day, uh, Marius and Humphrey were down by the river and a peculiar or not so peculiar thing happened. Uh, Humphrey bit the man who had watched over him for five years, dragged him into the river and proceeded to bite him to death. Because he's a hippo. Like he's a hippo. Like that's what hippos do. They're the most dangerous animal in Africa. This isn't surprising. It probably was to Marius at that moment. Here's, here's what happened. He treated the hippo like it was a pet to be managed. And it treated him like he was a meal to be eaten. Paul's severity of language here is so that we might not make the same mistake with our sin. When we treat our sin as if it is something to be managed, it will treat us like we are something to be eaten. And that's why Paul says, put to death in verse 13. It's really hard for me to like capture the weight and severity of the language that Paul is using here. Um, the original word that he uses here is thanaatos. 
that any Marvel fans, anything that Thanatos maybe reminds you of. Thanos. Does anyone know what Thanos actually means? Death. Thanos' name. Guys, Thanos is like telegraphing what he's doing like from the beginning. Whenever everyone's like, he's going to kill half the population. I'm like, the man's name is Death. He's going to kill everybody at some point. Like that's the, that's the, it helps to know Greek when you watch Marvel movies. I don't know. Um, right? So, so Paul is saying you need to Thanos your sin. Like that's the level of like razor sharp focus, desire, execution of like this is how you treat your sin. You Thanos it. And it's a proportionate response because if you attempt to manage it, it will make a meal out of you. Sin leads to ruin. This is what Paul is saying. And ruin happens in three directions. It happens up in our relationship with God. Sin creates separation between us and God. And all that fills the gap is shame and guilt and doubt and fear. And it just feels like he's so far away, even though he's done so much to make sure that we would know that he is so close. It ruins our relationship up. As we try to manage our sin, it makes a meal out of our relationship up. It makes a meal out of our relationship in, in relationship with others. Sin has sharp edges and we tend to poke each other with them. Our preferences, our power, our pleasure, our pain all leads to more horizontal pain as we create separation between us and others as we sin and sin against them. And then it it creates, uh, it ruins our relationships out as we look at people, as, as you Christians, as you look at people who do not know and follow Jesus. And they look at the way that, that you live and they, and they see your sin. It's like in Philippians 4 where Yodian Syntyche, Paul is talking to these, uh, this church and he writes and, and he specifically mentions these two women. And he says, hey, you need to ask these two people to reconcile together because it's actually distracting others from the gospel. Here's what that means. Um, imagine that you're sharing the gospel with someone and they look back at you and you're like, so what you're saying is that Jesus, that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ to live the perfect life that I could never live and died the death that I deserve and was risen from the grave on the third day so that I might be in relationship with God. So that, so that the brokenness between me and God might be reconciled by Christ, that my sin can actually be forgiven and I could be brought into relationship with God. And you would look at that person and be like, yes, that's what I'm saying. That's incredible. And then they look at you and they say, so if, if God can bring me into reconciliation and relationship with him, but that person and that person who both claim to be Christian can't figure out their beef and bring it together and squash it in the name of making peace and reconciliation, how is it possible that the gospel is strong enough vertically but weak horizontally? That person will look at you and say, I don't believe you. It will ruin the witness as it looks, as we look out. Sin has this tendency to to do these things up in and out. And Paul is writing to put an emphasis on the responsibility of the one who has security. To reference back to verse 4 where he says we need to walk in righteousness. And these ideas of security and responsibility seem at first to be in tension. They seem opposing. How can security and responsibility kind of fit together? Well, consider for a moment if you just have one and not the other. If you have security without responsibility, that will always result in passivity. It will always result in you not actually feeling or, or understanding the weight of what has been accomplished for you. So you'll rest on your blessed assurance and you'll kind of sit back and do whatever you want and not actually follow after the one who has saved you. It'll lead to passivity. That passivity will ultimately lead to destruction, destruction in your relationships up, in, and out. 
then consider responsibility without security. You're following, you're, you're, you're putting your sin to death, you're walking after Christ, you're doing the good works, but in your mind you have no security because you're attempting to try to earn and gain and receive your spot and all that results in is anxiety. You experience anxiety in your relationship with Christ and it leads you to despair. Security without responsibility leads to passivity. Uh, responsibility without security leads to anxiety. It can't be one or the other. We actually need to understand that it is both, that when we come to know Jesus, that he invites us and provides us with both. So what can hold security and responsibility together? I'm very glad that you asked. It's actually our gospel truth for this evening. And it's this, ready? I am adopted. Adoption is what holds eternal security and present responsibility together. Look at verse 14. For all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now quickly, uh, sons is not used here to be gender exclusive, but actually inclusive. This was language contextualized to Rome. The, the, the idea here was that you are sonizing or adopting. This term is, to see this term as gender exclusive is to look at like when uh, we see this picture of like Christ and his bride that is the church would, would be like looking at that as if saying like everybody in the church could only be a particular gender that would fit into to bride. It's not gender exclusive. It's a picture that reveals our reality. We are adopted into the family as children. Dahadi Lewis, who's one of the speakers at our conference actually, to no, he'll, yeah, he's tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, uh, he says it like this. He says, it is not like we become children of God. It is that we literally become children of God. This is not some metaphor to show what it is like. It is that Jesus Christ has actually made a way for us to literally be adopted by God into the family of God. And the focus of adoption and of father sets two key realities in place, who we are and who God is. So who God is, is father, and who we are, is children. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, colors it in like this, says, He predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. To be so clear, just like we have been with all the others. There was a time when we were condemned and now we're not condemned because of Christ. There was a time where we were trapped and now we're, not, now we're free because of Christ. There was a time where we did not belong and now we belong because of Christ. And there was a time, and may still be for you, where you were not adopted as a child of God, but you can be because of Christ. I wanna be so clear with this. John chapter one, verses 11 through 13. He, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. All are made in the image of God. That's Genesis 1. But John chapter 1 make, makes clear that not all are children of God. There is only one way to become a child of God, and it is belief in the name of Jesus. Turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. When you come to Jesus and you ask him to save you, to make you his, he rescues you from sin into salvation. You move from being far from God to being family of God as adopted children of God. 
And it's in this reality of adoption that we see both security and responsibility held together. Security speaks to relationship with God. You are the Father's and He is yours and nothing can change that. There is security in adoption, but it also speaks to responsibility. As a child carries the name of their father, so we carry the name of ours. Remember, who you belong to is who you are formed by. The way of the family of God forms the people of God by the spirit of God through the word of God. So as you come to understand more of your identity as an adopted child of God, your adoption will impact your activity. You will kill sin because it's just not who you are anymore. You don't owe it anything. You have a new set of desires and a new identity and a new adoption, a new way of life, a new family. You kill sin because it's not who you are anymore. You don't owe it anything. You do what it takes to Thanos your sin. You don't manage it because it's no longer who you are. A new identity as an adopted child of God results in new activity as an adopted child of God. It is our security that fuels our responsibility. This is why Paul says you've not been given a spirit of slavery to fall into fear. And right after that, talk, right, and he says that right after he's talking about responsibility. Because this responsibility, kill your sin, obligated not to the flesh but to the spirit, to the new way, not the old way. Adoption that shapes your activity. He says that security actually uh, is what fuels your identity. The uh, of security that you have as an adopted child of God fuels the responsibility that you have now as a child of God and actually presses you towards seeing your adoption shape your activity. Your identity in Christ shape what you do in his name. Adoption holds together security and responsibility. Eternal security fuels our present responsibility and these are housed and held together in the reality of our adoption into the family of God through Christ and sealed, marked as a child of God by the spirit of God. And beautifully, adoption shapes our activity. Adoption brings restoration where sin brought ruin. Let's think up, in and out one more time. So where sin brought ruin up, adoption brings relationship up. It means that I look at God and see that I look up and say that I am his son. You are his son, his daughter. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ and he is your father. That means that he looks at you with pride and with delight and with affection and with love. I love the song by Dante Boe called um, the, the, the Real Thing. And, and he says, um, baby step by step. To you it may be nothing, but you make daddy proud. It's this idea of what looks small and, and, and insignificant and tiny and like you're going too slow and not fast enough as you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ that God the Father looks at you and says, I love that you are walking. And I love that you are stepping. And I love that you're moving forward. That's a, a restored relationship up. It shapes our relationships in as well. It means that this John 13, 34, the new commandment that Jesus gives where he says, love one another. And it's by that that people know that you are my disciples. That as we are adopted into the family of God, it is not that we just get a father, but we also get new brothers and sisters as well. Which means the way that I treat the other people around me is 
not founded on whether I compare myself to them or look at them as in this way or that way, but I understand that what made both of us adopted children of God was the same thing, Jesus Christ, what separated us was the same thing, our sin. So we're actually on an equal playing field, a playing field marked by love, and now I look across at that person and say, you know, what affects you affects me, even if it doesn't directly affect me, because it is affecting you. You are my brother, you are my sister, we are a part of this family, we've been reconciled not only vertically to God, but horizontally now to one another. It shapes the way that we interact. It means that preference, power, pleasure are not the dictative motives for how we move towards one another, but love and peace and life are because we've been adopted into the same family by the same Jesus. And out, final, out, what it took for us to be adopted is the same thing that it takes for another to be adopted. And if God would adopt me with all the sin that I know that I have, with all the things that were wrong with me before I came to know and follow Jesus, and even still are struggles in my life as I come to know and follow Jesus, that he still calls me son, and he still delights in me, and he still delights in you. And we rest in this reality that saved people are actually sent people. So we go out and invite other people into this same family that God has graciously made a way for us to come into through Christ. Adoption restores what sin ruined, shapes our relationship up into our community and out towards a world that needs this Jesus. So let me close with just these last two verses, and we'll pick up on some of this next week. Verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, then also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Indeed, if we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. We're going to kind of hang out in that last half of that sentence and move into our next section of the scripture next week. But, but I want you to pay attention to the section that says, if children, then, then heirs. Christian, because you have been adopted by God, you will never be rejected by God. Heirs are locked in. They are secure. It is a complete security. You share as an heir with Christ. What Christ receives, you will as well. It's this and other texts like it that we draw the idea of this, that when God looks at you, he sees you and he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus as your representative. Why? Because you are adopted into the family of God through the name and the work of Jesus Christ. So that you are now in that family, not just as some member of it, but an heir and a co-heir with Christ. Will God turn his back on the risen Christ? That would be God turning his back on himself. He will not do it, and so he will never turn his back on you. This is deep security that comes from adoption. There's also a responsibility that heirs have. Anything that would pull them away from who they are as heirs needs to be removed. There is an assurance, a security that the best is yet to come for the heir so they can say no to lesser things. Even though the pleasure from those things might seem immediate, it is cheap and it will not last. We can say no to sin because we know that what we have in Christ and what is coming to the adopted heirs of Christ is far superior to anything that sin could ever promise. So we kill our sin by saying no to it and yes to Jesus over and over 
and over and over. And there is no fear of missing out on anything here, only flourishing now and in eternity as the adopted children of God and heirs of the kingdom with Christ. This is the beauty of this gospel truth. Security that fuels responsibility. Restoration where there was ruin. Assurance of reception and no fear of rejection for the adopted child of God. Full adoption for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And for those who have, you can say, I am adopted. Lucas is going to come up for in, here in just a moment, but, but I want to just point out a, a few more pieces to this. A- adoption allows you to put your sin to death because Christ himself was put to death for your sin. Adoption allows you to live in a new identity as a son or a daughter of God because Christ rose again so that we might experience new life with him, new birth with him in a new way through him who is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one will come to who? The Father except through him. And in adoption, we can rest secure as heirs, knowing that God will not turn his back on us because God will not turn his back on Christ. I am adopted. Just for a moment of focus and concentration, I want to ask you to just close your eyes and, and bow your heads just to consider these two questions. Um, the first question simply is this. Are you adopted? John 1 is incredibly clear. To those who believed in his name, who put their trust in his name, it is to those that he gave the right to be called the children of God. So here's my question. It's simply this. Have you put your trust in the name of Jesus to save you from your sin? This sin that you don't get to manage Have you turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus? Are you adopted or not? If you are adopted, praise God. If you are not, I am begging you. I am begging you. Let tonight be the night that you say yes to Jesus, that you surrender to him as Lord and as Savior, and you can rest in the security Is it evident that there is an inconsistency between